welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. Hope you're having a good week. And this week, I am stoked to bring you my convo with Dr. Nikki Kay. This is one for not just athletes, but anyone who basically knows an athlete and not just females either. Nikki has a BA in medical tripos and medical qualifications from Cambridge University. She has an extensive clinical and research experience in endocrinology and sport and dance and exercise medicine involving elite athletes, professional ballet dancers and young aspiring athletes. So she's a research fellow at St. Thomas Hospital. She was part of the international medical team working to develop a test to detect athletes doping with growth hormone uh, many years ago, and that was supported by International Olympic Committee. And her other research studies investigated the effects of training and nutrition on the endocrine system, body composition, and bone mineral density. We talk at length on some of these studies in our conversation today all about relative energy deficiency in sport. More recently, Nikki has turned her attention to an integrated and personalized approach to optimizing health and fitness. And so she regularly blogs on sport endocrinology over on the British Journal of Sport Medicine. And she wrote an educational online resource for relative energy deficiency in sport over at Health number four performance all one word dot co dot uk and we discuss this as well and these courses are split into a few so it's for the coach for the health practitioner and also for the athlete to understand better their training and their nutrition requirements she's an honorary fellow in the department of sport and exercise sciences at durham university she continues to conduct clinical research in sports and dance endocrinology and outside of all of her academic achievements she is an experienced ballet dancer choreographer teacher and is also a pilates instructor so you know there are so many strings to dr key's bow um it's amazing I put links in the show notes to all of the studies that we talk about in like the really helpful leaf questionnaire and and I think despite the fact that Nikki is an academic she's also a clinician and she has had a, a personal experience with reds herself and you know there are lots of really interesting take home from this talk so I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Nikki Kay. Welcome, Dr. Nikki Kay. Nice to speak to with you this morning. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Yes, it's um, early morning here in uh, the UK, in London. Very great and miserable as usual. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and actually it's quite funny because I'm sitting here in my tank top um, at night, almost past my bedtime, and you've got your lovely fur coat on. Um, yeah, yeah. Of, of Christmas. <laughs> um, Nikki, it's going to be great to speak with you today because um, I came across you on a number of different podcasts with you talking about reds, talking about dancers and athletes and low energy availability. And one of the things that 
kind of fascinated me a little bit about you personally is your history in and around dance and what led you to being really well known as a physician in the area of um, low energy availability. So firstly, can you just give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to where you are today? Um, Yeah, sure. Well, as a youngster, I was always active. Um, You know, I did, I was swimming um, at school. I was playing tennis in the tennis team. I was doing gymnastics, Uh, always doing a lot of things. But I guess uh, the the common thread has always been ballet for me. Um, I started doing ballet um, at a very young age. Uh, my whole family, my grandmother, my mother did ballet. So I did ballet, which I think isn't that unusual um, mm. uh, as, a, as a youngster uh, for girls and boys nowadays, I'm pleased to see. But anyway, lot, lots of um, youngsters stop doing ballet when they get to about 12 or something. But I was one of the rare people I actually carried on uh, and, you know, took it pretty, well, when I say seriously, it's something that well, I really enjoyed the movement, the physical challenge, the mental challenge, the musical challenge. I just thought it was great. Um, And I did actually do an audition. I was thinking of maybe, uh, you know, becoming a dancer. Mm -hmm. Um, But I kind of also realized that that although I was was reasonably good and in my little area, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I was good, but I wasn't that good. So actually I sort of realized that I would be better off or better I'll better serve should I say or provide uh, support for dancers and athletes if I went if I became a doctor and Mm. then applied my medical knowledge to supporting specifically dancers but all sorts of um, exercises athletes so so that's how that was my motivation really Um, obviously it's taken me a long time to eventually get to that point because uh, medicine is a long Mm. study uh, and then you have to go through all the various, you know, uh, training steps in medical terms as a junior doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually come to focus on the your uh, specialization, which for me is endocrinology hormones. Mm. And uh, now, as you say, uh, I've sort of come back to I come back. For, well, when I say come back full circle, I've eventually reached where I always wanted to be, mm. which is um, working uh, a lot with dancers and athletes, uh, uh, especially hormones. And this is why low energy availability, REDS, uh, or relative energy deficiency in sport, but also relative energy deficiency in dance specifically. Um, that's, as you say, that's that's what I'm uh, pretty involved in now. Yeah, and I, I often hear you making the distinction between dancers and athletes and I remember thinking it was really interesting you did that because to my mind from what I know of dancing like there are so many parallels that like dancers are athletes you know like with the amount of training with the potential metabolic cost um, with some of a lot of the same I suppose physique issues that some weight um, or gravity sports as you call them athletes have to deal with dancers are also experiencing the same thing in your with your um, background in dance and obviously the history in your family, has it? Do you think it's always been that way with regards to physique and dancers? Well, I mean, to back up your point, I agree that actually there are so many parallels with athletes and dancers, especially the athletic sports mm. like rhythmic gymnastics and diving, and also the weight dependent ones where you're going against gravity, climbing, road cycling up a hill. So absolutely, there are many similarities 
But the, uh, the reason I make the distinction is because there is a cultural division and also an organisational distinction. Yeah. Right? Um, the dance world is the dance world, uh, but the, the sports world, we have the IOC, etc. So yeah. there are different, there are, those are the differences. But going back to your point about has dance always been like this? Uh, I think just as with sport, uh, there have been changes over the years. Um, in terms of technique, but in terms of dance, I just recently posted a, an amusing picture, well, not amusing, a, a contrast picture between my grandmother from the 1920s, um, who was on point. Yep. Um, but she, it was, she was on both feet on point. And she's wearing a lovely, it's, it's not exactly a tutu, but it's very loose fitting, it's flowing. Yeah. She has a very romantic feel. Um, yes, she's slender, but you can see that those were the demands back then. Yes. Uh, but now then there's a picture of me. And as I say, I'm not like a top class dancer, but, you know, of a decent level. Uh, shorter, tight fitting tutu, yeah. legs totally exposed in tights, um, on point on one foot. Uh, so there is a there has been a change. If you think of the romantic ballets, uh, you know, there has been a change now to being more athletic. Yeah. Um, getting the legs higher, doing more turns, jumping higher. That is now expected and uh, and asked from choreographers today. So there has yeah. definitely been a technical demand increase in in dance, but I think that also parallels what's happening in sport. Yeah, you know, now world records are being bit, uh, beaten. You know, one gets faster and faster. So in that sense, things have changed. Uh, the standards have raised, if you if you will, or gone a different way, should I say? Yeah, it's really um, interesting. You know, I was reading a book, uh, Catherine Switzer's book. The woman who ran Boston, well, the, not the first one that ran Boston, but the first two made big headlines. And she was right. talking about how she got into running and and I'm a runner myself. And running is def- certainly one of those endurance sports whereby um, low energy availability is a real probability for a number of yeah. runners um, mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, which I'm sure that we'll talk about. And um, Catherine Switzer was talking about when she got into the sport in her teens, quite the opposite. She really wanted to build really strong muscles to be able to run. And so she was feeding herself more calories to get stronger, to be able to run, which is almost the opposite of what Mm. a lot of endurance athletes would be trying to do. Well, in their head, they don't think about strength. They think about power to weight. And for them, it's lighter. Exactly. I mean, and which is, we have to, we have to accept that is a consideration. Yeah. Certainly in the dance world, um, in Swan Lake, when she does 32 fuetes on point, I mean, you know, on one foot, on point, all your body weight going down through what, through big toe joint effectively. I mean, you know, there are actually good reasons why you have to be of lighter end range weight but the thing is i think it's all a matter of balance yeah. yes you have to be lightweight but not at the expense that you become that is your only target to be lightweight well being lightweight does not automatically mean you're going to win the marathon or do 32 footies on point so uh I'm, you know there are no shortcuts you can't just focus on one aspect of it mm. so that's i think why the um the, the problems maybe uh, arise. But going back to your original question, that the demands across for dance and sports, the standards, if you will, or the mm. technical demands or whatever you want to call it, have definitely increased. Uh, and also, um, so I think that's why there's uh, been a change, but also certainly from my most recent study of dancers, although that has changed in some ways, 
the sort of uh, old school mindsets are the same. Yeah. Certainly in the dance world about, you know, uh, for example, we know that over generations we've got taller. So there's yeah. no point saying, oh, you've got to be this certain weight because now the people are taller. So it's not really relevant anymore. Um, and the same to a certain extent with sport. I think, you know, one uh, changing, if you're expecting more of your athlete or expecting more of yourself, then actually you can't train like they did in the 1920s. Uh, I'm thinking chariots of fire when it was really frowned upon to be, I have a coach, you know? So, uh, so I think that that's the mismatch, the demand and the demands, not only of the sport, but also of yourself. You expect more more of yourself. I expect to be a better dancer than my grandmother was, for example. Um, The expectations are higher yet in some cases, not all, um, you know, we're still, we need to bring everything up to that speed and that level. And of course, especially with female athletes, we can't yeah. use blue for males, which I'm sure will come on to as well. Um, and also the other thing we have to take into consideration is social media. Yes. Uh, social media is great and connection, like we're talking from different sides of the world. So there are definitely some positive aspects of this. But also there we have to accept, and as I found in my recent study, there are some downsides of this. Yeah. Um, that messages or, or images can be literally spread worldwide, and some of them are not helpful or darn right misleading or incorrect. Um, and certainly my dancer study, you know, quite a lot were reporting that they did feel pressure yeah. from uh, expectations that you had to look like this eat like this whatever it was yeah so there are so many aspects to this um that have changed from uh you know the 1920s when my grandmother was dancing to to you know bringing us up to date now there are so many things that have changed would have all contributed yeah to the the low energy availability kind of of environment and that's what your most recent study that you've just published end of november i think um yeah yeah, yeah. Looking at um, a dance-specific low energy availability questionnaire, and not just yeah. female dancers, but males as well. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. I mean, it all started. If we're going to sort of get into low energy availability, it start started. Yeah. Well, I would like to say it did start in the dance world. Um, yeah. There were some studies by Michelle Warren, and even I did some studies on retired dancers showing female dancers showing that uh, even after retirement, they were uh, below expected bone mineral. Uh, density bone yeah. health because of pre- during their career their periods had stopped etc so anyway we started off with the female athlete uh, triad uh, Barbara Drinkwater in the 1980s looking at collegiate runners so the triad is uh, you know menstrual disruption low um, poor bone health and disordered eating mm. uh, and we realized you know that's sort of been known for quite a while since as I say since the 1980s more or less Um, But the problem with that model or that triad is, well, as the name suggests, female athlete triad, it's it's ignoring half the population, the men, and it's just three things. It's just a triad. And so hence the IOC consensus statement 2014 describing REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, which number one includes the men, so now it's inclusive, and also it's not limited to just the consequences of uh, bone health and menstrual dysfunction. It's throughout the body systems that can be impacted. And I would argue it's all driven by downregulation of hormones. It's the underlying cause of that. And also I think the actual crucial thing of 
you know, comparing the triad to reds, apart from the things I've mentioned, is actually the performance consequences. Yeah. Because the triad only talked about, uh, you know, health, clinical, yeah. right? Mental disruption and bone health. And whilst reds expanded that, those health consequences, the key thing is the performance aspect. The yeah. reds recognises that actually, and also this, why is this so important? Yeah. Because if you ask any dancer or athlete, you talk to them, oh, low energy availability reds, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, I just want to go faster. I just want to yeah. do 32 photos on point. I'm not actually, listen, I'll, I'll, I'm not that, you know, unless I'm going to get a stress fracture, you know, whatever. Um, I just want to know about performance. So that is crucial to me that the performance is recognized. And it makes sense. Obviously, mm. if mm. your hormones are downregulated, you're not going to perform to your full potential because what drives adaptations to exercise? Yeah. Your hormones. Yeah, so if those sure. aren't working for you, then it kind of all makes sense. But uh, uh, I think that's um, quite crucial um, yeah. in the whole discussion of low energy availability, the consequences, not just for health, but for performance. Can you define low energy availability for us, Nikki? Oh, yeah, like we should do that, shouldn't we? Just get that um, done and dusted. So... Mm, let's define what energy availability is so yes. uh, you eat a, you get as humans we're not plants we don't photosynthesize so we need all the energy we can get from our food and we so we eat our food and actually that energy uh, it's prioritized to cover movement exercise mm -hmm. it's from an evolution point of view Mm -hmm. because one has to you know evolution point of view you need to run away if you're going to be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger so um from an evolution point of view the energy is prioritized to cover training demand mm. so that goes off and does that and then the residual energy what's what's left over if you will that is energy availability yeah and actually i think the thing that people don't realize that's a big old chunk of what you take in yeah. because even if you lie in bed all day not doing anything just to maintain basal metabolic rate, just to stay alive, those seven life processes we learn about at school, you know, respiring, uh, you know, heart beating, et cetera, et cetera, all those things, those take a lot of energy. And that's not even taking into account just sort of getting up, going and get a cup of coffee, going to the loo, it doesn't even take account of any movement at all. Mm. So that's what energy availability is. And so low energy availability means you're below the amount that you personally require to maintain all those basic processes. Yeah. So, I mean, why would that, why might you get into low energy availability? Well, one thing is that you might be doing a heck of a lot of training. Mm -hmm. um, you might be doing a training camp. You might be doing double training days. You might be a dancer. Well, I'm sadly the theaters are shut at the minute, but you might be building up to lots of performances. So for whatever reason, you've got more, demand from energy uh, for the exercise, the training aspect. And so you could wind up therefore in low energy availability because the training load has increased. Or, and that's, I would say, more an unintentional one. You mentioned ma uh, marathon runners and, you know, uh, we're a family of cyclists, not me, but <laughs> uh, my husband and my boys. And, you know, it's actually quite physically difficult. If you're going out on a four hour cycle ride, even if you stuff bananas and whatever in your back pocket, it can actually be tricky to keep on top of your energy demands. So there's the sort of more unintentional yeah. energy availability where it's just because of the training demand and you haven't quite factored in how much you need to eat maybe. Yeah. But the intentional energy availability it, um, is more in the sports, well, first of all, in dance, yeah. also in athletic sports and also in the weight dependent sports. 
i.e. against gravity sports. Yeah. Um, those ones the person might think, uh, get it in their mind that this will confer a performance advantage if they're lighter weight than they are already. Yeah. Um, and so they intentionally restrict what they're eating and therefore obviously that can also result in being in low energy availability. So there are various ways of getting to that situation. Mm. Um, but then once you're there, you haven't got enough energy to maintain all those physiological life processes then the body is very clever and it's evolved it's survival mode mm. so it will shut down it will look for ways of saving energy yeah um yeah. and one of those is reducing metabolic rate in women switching off periods yeah. uh, in, in and say this also applies to men now we're talking more men and women women there's the obvious sign like you said that the periods might become disrupted uh, quite early on but in men uh you know uh disrupted sleep gastrointestinal issues psychological issues because the yeah. brain is a very greedy organ yeah it needs a lot of energy so actually psychological mood um you know things like this can be affected pretty early on uh, and potentially performance might suffer earlier than we thought so from a symptom perspective then, or what to look for if yes. you're concerned about your athletes or you're concerned about yourself or your peers, then changes in mood, um, yes. performance detriments, like small, even small ones, like inability to recover, are these some of the things that people should be aware yeah. of? Well, first of all, the behaviours. So the, yeah. the person, it might be, it might be that they are uh, reluctant to eat with people. Yeah. Or everyone is having their recovery, uh, you know, nutrition after a training session together as a group. Or, for example, on a group ride, everyone's chomping into their bananas and energy bars, but there's someone that isn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it could be and the, the your behaviors around food could be you, you could notice that in yourself or you could notice it in someone else mm-hmm. uh, or your um, behavior around exercise. Yeah. Exercise dependence. So the person is. I mean, listen, I, I'm sure we all get annoyed if we have to miss a session because I don't know, whatever's happening, work runs over, um, you know, we're ill, we're injured, but the people that get absolutely desperate and so anxious if they Mm. miss it and actually try and exercise, even if they are ill and injured, uh, that's a sort of a behavioral trait. So the the behavioral traits, um, but then as you say, the consequences in terms of mood could be early on. Yeah. being just flat, withdrawn, not, you know, not interacting, gastrointestinal issues like we, uh, I touched on, yes. and that can also be misinterpreted. The person thinks, oh, I must have a, uh, feel bloated or whatever it is because uh, I'm eating too much, I'm eating the wrong thing. Yeah. I've got uh, irritable bowel syndrome, but actually it's not none of those things. Yeah. It's because you haven't got enough energy, so the gut can't, have its normal peristalsis motility can't digest because that's an energy dependent thing Um, so that could be something uh gut issues mood menstrual cycles uh you know the list sort of uh goes on frequent illness injury we've mentioned bone health stress fractures obviously is is a real red flag um but ultimately also performance detriment although at first at first this and this is a sort of the fool's gold at first, the person might buzz because if you you know sometimes you get a you do get a buzz if you're hungry, right? Yes. Obviously, because your cortisol's gone up, yes. so you might you might get a good performance or two. Yeah. Um. But and uh, but again, you one misinterprets that you yeah. say, oh well, 
I'm, I've done, I'm better because I haven't eaten so much or I've lost weight or something. Yes. But the thing is, it's not sustainable. Yeah. So you might get a few good performances, but you know, what happens next year, you know, that's when the stress fracture might strike or whatever it is. Yeah. So that's the other thing I find when I'm seeing people and maybe you find the same that they often come and say, listen, I'm absolutely fine. How can I possibly be in low energy availability? I've just done a really good race performance, whatever it is. Yeah. I'm feeling fine. I haven't had a stress fracture. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, no, that hasn't happened yet. Yes, but it could. It will catch up on you. And so that is, uh, you know, when the incentive about improving your performance and reaching your full potential, because yeah. effectively you're selling yourself short. Yeah, for sure. And you've said a couple of things, which I just want to kind of touch on, Nikki. First of all, the idea of missing a training session because of ill um, or, or being under the weather, you, yet you will train anyway. You've pretty yeah. much described every single endurance athlete I've ever met. Um, and mm-hmm. and the, the next thing is about the improvement, the initial improvement in performance. And I think that we can all probably name one or two um, uh, just in my circle, runners or triathletes who do appear to do very well in the short uh, term, term. Yeah, with regards to kind of dropping body weight and then performing like out of this world and then actually just move off the scene and you don't hear about them for years wow. and you hear that things have happened, but you're unsure and, and absolutely it has, uh, you know, come back to that low energy availability and that hormone disruption, but to the absolute nth degree. And also I think it's really important to potentially acknowledge that, you know, we're talking about athletes and you work with a number of very high caliber athletes and people who might be age group podium or even national champions, things like that. And I speak to a number of uh, people in the day-to-day mid-packers, crossfitters mm-hmm. who talk about that whole kind of feeling good being hungry you know like I can go right you know I do my CrossFit class at six o'clock in the morning I have a couple of coffees I'm not even hungry I feel amazing but it's just when it gets to kind of nighttime, you know I can't get rid of these nickels and I can't stop eating so you know you've got this low energy availability in terms of calories in a day but then you also potentially I wonder you know how much of it is the delay of taking on board calories because I must do a 16-8 fasting protocol Mm. even if you consume a number of calories you're still actually putting yourself at risk yes well for sure so um so so working backwards through your points uh, i hope i can remember them all um so this low energy availability it's not uh just restricted to elite people athletes or dancers in fact if anything in my experience i would argue it's more likely the aspiring athletes yeah. Or even the non-competitive. I've had people who apologize. They say, I'm not an athlete. I'm not a dancer. I'm just doing some fitness to keep fit. Yet yeah. they're doing double training days and faster training. It's like that is more than an elite person would do. Yeah. They haven't got the supervision or the input. And so they're just going on things, again, that they've heard through social media, whatever it is, uh, which aren't applicable to them. Mm. I mean, we have to accept that there is, a, you know, there is an obesity uh, epidemic. But on the other end of the spectrum, we're talking about people totally away from that. And so doing fasted training is one of my bugbears because, um, yes, you do feel a buzz. But I've seen it time and time again. And I found that in my study of male cyclists. Mm. The cyclists were doing three or more training, fasted training sessions per week. They were the ones, funnily enough 
who were clinically in low energy availability, lower testosterone and lower poorer bone health. Yeah. Um, and ultimately during the race season scored less BC race points. So you're right, it's a, it's a short term thing. Short term, not only in, in terms of performance, but also even in the day, like you just pointed out, and that's a crucial point. Even if you were to do the balance books at the end of the day, which I don't necessarily recommend people do, because if you're a little bit obsessive, this is one way to become even more obsessive. But anyway, if you did do a tot up, a balance sheet, calories in, calories out, even if actually it came out as fine, mm -hmm. not negative, if you've had those big deficits in the day, like you're saying, especially faster training in the morning, training already puts the stress on the body, full stop. Waking up fasted, that's why it's called breakfast, first breakfast breaking your fast if you're already in um a fasted state that's already metabolic stress yeah. now you add on training stress it's yeah. like obviously that's not great and so if you're doing that sort of pattern of a big energy deficit straight up first thing in the morning massive massive then your body is now you're on catch up for the rest of the day yeah and typically those type of people like you say will um uh, backload the end of the day because yeah. their body by the time they come to the evening meal their body is screaming yeah right and so then I have lots of people saying oh gosh I feel really bad that I I eat a really big dinner it's like yes because your body is in desperation states uh, but we know from studies by Anna Mellon from Denmark she has shown that even if you if you do this uh, misdistribution yeah. of energy during the day that increases cortisol, decreases estrogen, and decreases testosterone in men. Yeah. So it's not as simple as, you know, calories in, calories out. It's not as simple as, I mean, it's a starting point, it's an indicator. Yeah. But then thereafter, it's also the distribution of that energy during the day. And also then it's on a cumulative basis. Yeah. So the way I'm working with the new thing, well, when I say new thing, the way I'm presenting it to people uh, maybe you're doing the same as I'm talking about a forward-looking schedule for nutrition, yeah. not this catch-up thing, because you're mm. never going to catch up. No. Uh, so don't do fasted training. doesn't mean you have to have a whole massive meal beforehand, but at least have something on board. Refuel immediately afterwards. And then when you come to the, by the time you come to your evening meal, that's not a catch-up meal. Yeah. That is actually more looking forward to the next day. Yeah, uh, it might be catching up a little bit, I accept, but it's more in preparation for the next day. Otherwise, you're just chasing your tail. You're never going to catch up. So that was the energy distribution. The thing about the short term gains, this is especially applicable to young athletes, Yeah, uh, especially in swimming, which, um, listen, I used to be a competitive swimmer. My sons went through competitive swimming. So I've got nothing against swimming, by the way, but. Um, it does seem that it's one of those sports that is a little bit in a time warp um, because I was quite surprised when my children, my boy started swimming. It's like, oh, this is exactly what I used to do 30 years ago. Yeah, um, wow. Early morning training, evening training session. It was like, it's horrendous. Really massive training loads for, really, for young, for, for teenagers, for young people, for children. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, that you do get good short-term gains. My son won the county championships you know it, you get a short-term thing but then how many of those swimmers that were winning medals when they were 12 how many of those do you see in, in their early 20s at the olympics yeah so you want to make sure it's a burnout thing but especially magnified in the young age group but also the older ones so that's the short-term thing and then working back through your points the first thing about exercise addiction i have to say uh guilty oh guilty yeah. as well. uh, i mean you 
recognize it all in ourselves. And I'm yeah. not saying that this is a bad thing. To be really excited and determined and driven, I don't want those people to get the wrong impression that I'm saying we should all not be like that. Yeah, um, yeah. That's great. And I've been guilty of that myself on many occasions. Um, I actually had COVID at the beginning of the year in March. Oh. And I remember one morning getting up and it was meant to be my Zoom ballet class. And I knew I was really ill, but I was determined to try and do the class. But even I came to that point when it's like, you know, if you're fainting, even getting up of bed, you're not going to be able to do ballet class. But I, there have been times I, I know myself and even now when I'm tempted, especially for me with remote Zoom ballet classes, normally I go to a studio, I do four classes a week. Yeah. But then with, with Zoom, I could actually do a ballet class every day. I could even do two classes a day. Yeah. And I went to the crazy patch a few days of doing that. And it was my family that turned around and said, what is that thing you talk to people about? <laughs> Addiction is like, yeah, yeah, I know. So that's where actually I was pulled up. Right. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. My, my age, you would think I'd be old enough and wise enough. So listen, no. I think it's there for all, it's there for all of us, but we have to be honest to ourselves. And so that's when actually it's helpful if friends and family can pull you up. Yeah, totally. Say, what are you doing yeah yeah it was funny actually I had a conversation with um Barry my husband this evening because he did a long run this morning and then he e-bikes to work which is you know a little bit of effort but nothing like actual mm -hmm. actually cycling and then I'm like babes you can tell I know I'm tired today because usually I'd be really jealous that you've done that and I've only done like 10 minutes on the bike and a oh, few yeah. like shoulder things I'm like <laughs> I must be really tired because I really don't want to do that whereas usually that is me like and I wonder how much of, you know, like endurance that we choose to go into endurance sports or, or demanding sports. Um, and it's mm. almost like, do we choose to go in or do those sports? Um, demands us, really you know? Because it's a, if you look at the, the um, IOC red model, there's yeah. a reversible arrow with the psychological. Yes. yes so yeah. why do you, why do you choose to do ballet? Yeah. Cause actually it is, it is very demanding and you actually, uh, listen, you have to be a perfectionist. You yeah. know, you were really determined to get it right and everything. Anyway, but also the same for sports. You actually want to drive, you want to push yourself. You want to really feel on the limit, right? Yeah. So psychological uh, initiator, I'm sure, is, is very, very important. The IC recognize that. So if you're of that type, uh, it's great when it when, it's great if it's as a, as a driver in itself, but it's when that drive and determination or, or obsession gets misplaced. You yeah. see, so that's that's why it's a, a potential causal uh, factor in reds, uh, yeah, the intentional sure. one, because you are you'll you'll be able to you know you will try and force yourself to do a uh, to do a badly class even if you've got flipping COVID, you know, so, um, but equally you can, therefore you could easily apply that determination to, right. I'm not eating any carbohydrates today. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. So it's easily that it could slip into off the rails like that, or, oh yeah, I'm going to do a double session or a double <laughs> two classes in a day or something. So that's the causal thing. But then once you're in that situation of low energy availability, we've discussed that the brain is very en energy hungry. Yeah. Uh, and the hormones are important for neurotransmitters. So we've talked about affecting your mood, but also actually your decision process, your yeah. cognitive function. Yeah. Um, you know, basically you get absolutely the E-day fix in your head that you are doing the right thing and that everyone else is wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and you just push on 
and you misinterpret science, like we said about the gastrointestinal thing, it's like, well, it must be because I'm eating too much yes, or whatever. Or I've or got like, all these sensitivities, so I can't eat. I haven't lost any weight, but the, by the way, the reason you haven't lost any weight is because your metabolic rate's downloaded, but anyway, uh, downregulated. So that's when it now becomes this vicious circle yeah. in the psychological thing. But again, it's, it's all about, it sounds a bit, I don't know, whatever it is, it's about recognising that or yeah. other people call you know mentioning that to you pointing that out because otherwise it can you can just get very almost introverted and start going round and round in smaller and smaller circles you see yeah, yeah. Um, self-perpetuating so I don't think we want to give the message we're not trying to tell people that exercise and dance is unhealthy <laughs> far from it but we're just saying be aware there are certain limits or or, or uh, how can I say forks in the road or yeah. or deviations when you can go off of course, uh, like this, if you're that personality type. And Nikki, like we've talked low energy availability and you've you've mentioned, you know, that there is energy that is required for physiological processes, our basal metabolic rate, and then there's mm -hmm. the energy required for the activity we do. How does someone calculate that? And what are the cutoffs? Like, are there hard cutoffs? Do we have some soft cutoffs? Which, which are the ones that you kind of use? Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot. I mean, the thing is the concept of it, uh, is great yeah and if people haven't read already all the work that Louise Burke does from Australia is amazing yeah so she has written a whole sort of uh, discussion paper review of this and says that the thing about uh, energy availability the concept of it low energy availability and I've made some nice infographics so I also encourage people to go and look there they can see exactly it's very easy I have these nice pictures I've made and I show them to people and you know it's easy to understand all yeah. right fine uh, all the energy's gone over there to the exercise. I haven't got enough left in the tank to. So it's a great concept. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty of it, as Louise Burks points out, actually measuring it is quite tricky yeah. unless you're in strict lab conditions. Yeah. You have to monitor everything the person eats mm. and literally weigh everything like this. Yeah. Uh, you also have to absolutely quantify all the energy expenditure yeah. through the exercise, which may be relatively easy in some sports like bikes you can work out the watts if you've got a power meter etc mm. a bit harder for ballet but anyway um you know you can work out how much you expend through the exercise but then how it's very difficult to quantify you know how much energy am i going to use getting from my chair to walk to the kitchen to make my lunch to walk back you know what i mean actually yeah. how you how the heck you know so it's very difficult to account for all the energy expenditure and then you'd have to do basal metabolic rate and then even if you get all those figures then you need, need to do a dexa scan because you need to know what the fat-free mass is of the person yeah. energy availability is defined as kilocalories per kilogram of lean body mass yeah so to actually uh compute that is is for a research project in yeah. the lab okay yeah. it's not for an everyday person to do and that is thing is the problem because i think people think oh it's an easy calculation yeah. i'll just look at the my power meter from a bike yeah i'll just give a get a rough idea of how much i've eaten and then fine mm. but the point is uh that is a that will definitely be an accurate measurement number one uh, and also it's not that easy to get well uh, you'd have to go and get a DEXA as well. But anyway, but then fine. Say you even say you do all of this. You now got this figure. What does that figure mean for you? Yeah. There, has, there have been studies um, by uh, Anna Lukes yeah. um, a couple of years ago now in women where she did this in lab conditions. 
-hmm. and gradually reduced the energy availability, manipulated it in women. And she found for women the cutoff, right? When, okay, fine, at this cutoff, period stop. But it was a, it was a certain, it was a group of women who were untrained. Yeah. Uh, and so listen, we know there are differences in all of us. In women, we know that some people actually, some women can be actually very, very, very lean, yet they still menstruate. Yeah. Yet other people, I know for me, my cutoff, you know, uh, everyone has a different set point. Yeah. In, in women and certainly also in men. So that's the other thing. So that's why um, I wouldn't be, I'm not a big advocate of trying to calculate that yourself because it's very difficult to calculate it accurately. And even if you get the figure, how do you know what that is for you? Unless you've got an identical twin. Yes. Right? Uh, and you can do an absolutely controlled experiment like that with your identical twin. Um, you know, it's, you won't know what it is for you. Yeah. But I think it's just a general... Uh, so that's why questionnaires is a, are a very good starting point. Yeah. Uh, and the, I've made one. There's the leaf cue, which is for females. There isn't much for men. I did one for the male cycling study I mentioned. Yeah. Um, and also I've just done this one for dancers. And although it's for dancers, it is for men and women. And actually, I would suggest people look at that because yeah. uh, it's the same basis, but the only thing that you know, it's just you would change about the training, the but the general terms of attitudes to training, because I, from the dance study, which is fascinating, is I found actually the psychological drivers, yeah, those were actually quite key in, be, and they were linked significant relationship with the physical outcomes, yeah, menstrual disruption and all these things, right, yeah. and, and being low body weight. So uh, actually, just doing that as a starting point just to see yeah. if you are at risk because it also I think it's important to make the point that low energy availability is the state so yeah. you're in low energy availability um, and your body processes uh, might start to downregulate. yeah reds relative energy deficient sport that describes the clinical outcomes of being in low energy availability yeah uh, you know, uh, stress fractures, bone health, etc. Mm. So what we want to try and do, or what I'm trying to do, <laughs> I'm trying to detect the people that are at risk. By the time the person walks, well, they won't be walking, but if the, by the time the person hops through my door mm. with a stress fracture, uh, I've, it's like that makes me really sad because now the consequences have already happened. Yeah. Now I'm doing catch up. Now I'm now I, it's just a reactive process. Yeah. Really, we want to be proactive. We need to be preventative. So we need to pick up the early warning signs, which are definitely psychological, by the way. Yeah. Pick up those early warnings and, and try and persuade the person to change their behaviors then before they pitch up with the stress fracture. And that is possible because that's what I found in my cycling study. Yeah. Um, when I gave some advice to uh, I divided the group into two after their bone scan. And uh, so they were matched. They were matched for bone health. And the ones I gave educational advice to mm. about, look, please, no faster training, uh, have energy on board, refuel afterwards, you know, uh, three decent meals a day. Don't avoid carbohydrates. Do off, do strengthening skeletal loading exercises because cyclists hate doing things yes. off the bike. I know, I know. They're either on the bike or they're on the sofa. That's it. Anyway, <laughs> um, and I could say that 
because my family is cyclist, right? In case anyone starts to say, oh, what you say. Anyway, um, so those guys that I gave the education advice to and they did put it in place, guess what? When they came back, the bones had improved. Yeah. And the race performance was better than the other group. Yeah. Because the scary thing is, left to their own devices, by default, my cyclists did restrict, do fasted riding because they thought they were going to get the short-term benefit of getting lots of race points that race season. Actually, right. it backfired. They yeah. lost bone density the same amount as astronauts in space over Amazing. six months. Yeah. And they won less uh, BC, British Cycling, race points compared to the guys that had taken on board my education advice. So that's, that's I know, that interve- educate, well, intervention is a bit of a strong word, education, uh, a behavioural change, it does... Uh, make a difference if okay. you get it in early. so were the cyclists receptive to what you said yes well yeah. well listen uh there were 50 to start with yeah and they divided, then they divided roughly into 20 you know 25 mm. 25 uh and uh, in general most of them you know uh they were uh, compliant i hate that word compliant it makes it yeah. sound like I'm forcing them to do something, but they they uh, they were adherent. Yes, they were receptive. Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, in general, I mean, there were a few that were a bit reluctant, and I wasn't entirely convinced. But still, yeah, uh, uh, overall, yeah, um, they were happy to give it a go and see. So- and then when they came back, and and they were really they had a smile on their face. Yeah, because they had they had a good season. And I had a fight smile on my face because their bone density had improved. And, you know, then that was the proof for them. Yeah, for sure. I just wonder whether you'd run the same study in female cyclists, what, how adherent the, the group would be. And I just say that as a female myself, like it's very difficult. <laughs> it's very easy to tell a woman to take something out of her diet. So challenging to tell them to put something in. So, you know, but of course, because the proof was in the pudding, so to speak. Well, that's the thing. I think think women, uh, especially, uh, you know, I've got the evidence from that. And especially if you, you know, if I explained it to the the cyclist, look, um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that this will help. And by the way, I wasn't necessarily in some cases, they were eating reasonable amounts of carbohydrate. It was the timing that was off. Yeah. So that's the other thing, you know, going through the detail of it, it might be, uh, you know, the cyclist, well, actually, yeah, it's just you've got the balance wrong, like we said, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so there were some, it's true, where I had to say, well, actually, you're not eating enough full stop. It's true. But um, nevertheless, after I've given a sort of a, a little bit of a explanation why, the rationale, yeah. Yeah, and also the exercises I gave them, they were doable because I yeah. knew uh, that if I gave them something unattainable too much, they would never do it. And I didn't just exercises that you could do at home because yeah. again, well, especially now you can't go to gyms, but this was before pre-COVID. But anyway, um, obviously it wouldn't be good advice to be telling people to go off and do deadlifts if they've never done one before, and when are they going to do that in race season? So. Again, it was quite handy having, uh, you know, my husband and son. My son was part of the study, so he kind of, we sort of put, to, and he's a cycling coach. Nice. So we sort of went through the exercises 
and he sort of was my guinea pig. It's like, okay, fine, yeah. And he made comments, actually, this one, you need lower, you need, uh, lower reps or whatever it was. Yeah. So when they had these exercises that I, I was, you know, I said to them, listen, I've tested these out yeah um with my cycling coach son who by the way is cat one and in the racing team so yeah. do you know what I mean it had some ability it's like you know um uh, and let's see uh, yeah. I mean I listen I wasn't entirely uh I mean I felt actually it was quite difficult uh, because the ones I wasn't giving advice to you know I did feel a little bit bad but uh my um the um uh, PhD person I did the study with she said to me listen it's ethically it's okay because we're not absolutely sure yeah right yeah, yeah. even though I was kind of thinking but anyway um, but the point is that even though those the ones that um we didn't give the advice to uh you know I've showed even though they did lose bone density and that that was a scary amount but on the other hand I've got the proof on the other side that you can improve that Totally. So, you know, hopefully, uh, but yeah, listen, by the way, female, uh, female cyclists. Um, yeah, for sure. It's just, I felt that, uh, the reason I did male cyclists is because, you know, there had been so much talk two years ago about, oh, it's only, uh, this only happens in women. It's not a problem this. in men. So I, I specifically did, uh, do the, the male cyclists yeah. and actually lots of them were really grateful I did. Because one of them turned around and said, wow, you've changed my life. It was like, that's really flattering. But you know what I mean? Yeah, it totally. did make a difference. And also one of them pointed out who was really struggling and said, yeah, the problem is uh, I'm glad you've done this study because how would you feel if, if people turned around or you said, oh, yeah, I've got the female athlete triad. It's like, oh, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, so, yeah. So and there was a, one of the cyclists in that study did a patient voice, as we call it, for the BJSIM, British Journal of Sports Medicine, which I thought was also really good. So I was trying to raise the awareness for the male athletes in terms of, of, uh, of reds. Yeah. And also just trying to, I mean, usually I have to say that usually it is way male biased in the terms of, um, you know, clinical trials, clinical studies, evidence, training, you know, so yeah, it's, that's not great, but uh, in this particular area, actually the males have been underrepresented. So Absolutely. I was just trying to, trying to even out the balance. And now from now onwards, all my studies, I'm going to try and make, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I like, thought it was great actually, because yeah. I, I thought it was great for that reason, you know, because it's often we, of the, that low energy availability um, story is, is overrepresented in, in females, yet so many of endurance athletes um, yeah. I would, you know, you just expect would suffer from the same things, but it would manifest differently because men don't have periods. So yeah. they're not going to see the, that. The thing is that the males, the male red athlete is a bit like the menopausal. Yeah. Uh, red athlete, because we haven't got the uh, sign of menstruation, but all the health outcomes and performance outcomes, if you take out menstruation, more, yeah. you know, Michael from that, everything else holds true. Yeah. 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 Um, really. So you just have to, just cross out that question yeah 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 and then <laughs> and just move on. the other things are still are still valid about sleep mood uh you know all these sorts of other things gastric problems yeah uh, everything else is exactly the same and it's interesting when you speak to masters um athletes or just uh, people who quite clearly have low energy a low energy intake for their metabolic output and and once they start eating more, their energy increases, they perform yep. better. Their metabolic output actually 
actually increases because yes. they've got the energy to produce the energy, right? And so- Yeah, exactly, they, and the metabolic rate upregulates. I see that from yeah. the hormones. I see yeah. that from the thyroid function test. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got quite, you know, well, as you can imagine over many years. Yes. <laughs> You know, you just show me a set of bloods. It's like, yeah, one of those. You yeah. know, it's um, you you looking for patterns. Yeah. And I see it immediately on the bloods. Low T3. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Metabolic rate down regulated. I mean, that's just one of them. Obviously, I look at the whole thing. But you know, and then they come back. That's increased. But actually, you make a very good point. The first thing uh, that I specifically see is I see the person smiling. Yeah, yeah. The first time I met them, and I met, you know, from the cycling study, also from other dancers and athletes I've I've worked with. First time I see them, they're a bit flat. They're not looking so happy. And then for the cycling study, I know. Remember one particular male cyclist. He's pretty miserable the first time, poor chap. Um, and then the next time I saw him, as he was approaching, he had a smile on his face. Yeah. And I said, I don't need to, uh, I don't need even to need to look at your blood test. I don't need to look at your DEXA scan. I don't need to even ask you anything because I know that you are feeling better. And I know that these results will be better. Yeah. And that is really fascinating. And for dancers, I also remembered a dancer who, um, again, she came back and said the thing that she uh, noticed, she was a great, lovely dancer, very talented dancer, beautiful. But then when she came back and she said, it's kind of, she didn't say, oh, you're right. But she said, you know what, now, uh, now I just feel more alert. Yeah, nice. I can pick up the corrections. I can pick up the choreography because it is quite fast moving in dance yeah. classes. You're showing once. It's like, right, do this, this and this to this tempo, go. So you have to really compute quick, 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 right? And if, if you're, you know, it's like, you know, okay, fine, oh, your foot's out of alignment, but you have to like quickly do, you know, correct. So you have to, it's a quite a fast computation thing. And she said that's what had improved for her. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. So that's the cognitive function. Again, Anna Merlin's stuff. I wasn't surprised, but it was interesting to hear it in that context because Anna Merlin, another excellent study, amenorrheic athletes, um, uh, neuromuscular skills impaired. Yeah. Uh, yeah slower reaction time uh peak power production down mm -hmm. so we knew that already from athletes but it's very interesting to hear that from from uh dancers yeah for sure and nikki what is the dietary pattern like of dancers like what have you kind of seen are there any trends that you pick that if you were given no other details you'd kind of go you know i think something's up here or i think there could be something amiss could you tell anything from the food that they eat yeah, well, for some reason, carbohydrates has got such a bad press. Poor yeah. things. I mean, <laughs> such a vital food type. Yeah. Uh, you know, a third of your plate should be made for, of carbohydrates, even if you're not an exerciser. Yeah. And we know that, uh, and I'm sure hopefully you'll agree, that especially the higher intensity yeah. exercise, that's when you need to burn carbohydrates. And actually, um, dancing is, it's a bit like, it's a bit like interval training. Yeah. Um, because you do start off slowly at the bar in a class, but then you build up to short sprints effectively. Mm -hmm. Short and a, a solo in a ballet, it's only about two or three minutes, right? Quite a lot anaerobic. Mm. Uh, and then, so it is a sort of, you definitely need carbohydrates if you're a dancer. Mm. Um, but as I say, partly I blame social media, partly also the general message that, oh, 
you know, we've all got type two diabetes, we're all obese, cut down yeah. in carbohydrates. Unfortunately, that's filtered through to everybody. Yeah. Um, it seems to me anyway. Yeah. Um, and so that's one thing I see a lot, orthorexic, avoiding carbohydrates or teeny amounts of carbohydrate, which mm. would be enough for a sparrow, but that's about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, a sparrow on a very lazy day, not doing much. So, you know, not enough. Yeah. Uh, and also this, the spacing of it again. Yeah. You know, uh, we've had a little intermittent fasting banded around, da, 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 and that might be appropriate. I, I have done in my time a lot of uh, diabetic clinics, type 2 diabetes. Mm. If you're a type 2 diabetic coming to an NHS clinic, you're overweight. Quite a lot of them, they say, oh, I hate exercise. So they're a totally different thing. Yes, yeah. I would be saying to them, please don't eat those donuts, right? Yeah. yeah. Totally different. So you have to personalized individual but in general terms uh those types of athletes dancers mm, cutting down on carbohydrates and and leaving big deficits during the day again i totally understand if you've got to squeeze into a tight tutu right yeah uh, you've got to be rehearsing all day in your costume and then you've got an evening performance you, do, you don't really want to eat a big meal before yeah. uh, and then by the time you've done your performance you're buzzing you're feeling yeah. great it's late by the time you've taken every, you know, uh, stage makeup off, da, 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 uh, got home. Uh, I had one dancer who was on tour. She said, yeah, by then all the shops were shut. Everything was shut. Yeah. 11 o'clock, everything's shut. And, you know, hadn't thought ahead to get the food in, or even if they have got some food in, you know, 11 o'clock, you're tired, you're buzzing and then you're tired. And actually, you know, the thought of sort of making a decent meal, it's, it's, so there are definitely different, you know, difficulties like that. And the same for athletes, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's all about, I'm um, so this sounds very boring and tedious and a very mother thing to say. It's all about planning ahead. Yeah, for so sure. The, yeah. So the young dancers, it's like, listen, um, you know, it's your responsibility. This is part of your training. Yeah. This is part of the training. Uh, you know what the days you've got to do in the day, you know, you've got a class here and here. Have you packed in your banana, your energy, you know, your cereal bar, have you got your recovery milkshake? Have you got it all sorted for the day? Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? It's You have to kind of, that's part of a whole training schedule. I think most people think training schedule just means training, but actually yeah. you have to have factored in the nutrition, the yeah. timing, the amount, and also the recovery. You mentioned recovery. Yeah. You know, have you got a rest day? Uh, are you trying to get enough sleep? Uh, you know, all those sorts of things. So you have to, you have to look at all those aspects. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I really wonder about, if I'm thinking about dance particularly, and I don't know the culture of dance at all, how much of this is are coaches aware of or trainers aware of, of the dancers? So I would just wonder how, how much the coaches are on board with mm. the idea of dancers being potentially a couple of kilograms heavier from a health mm. perspective like like is, is there a is there any tension there nikki that you can see or no um, the thing is this is not a blame game uh, and i have to say there's some are better than others yeah yeah i mean i work with scottish ballet and that is what uh, absolutely amazing company yeah. but the reason is because the artistic director yeah is an ex dancer himself and he's very uh, sort of um holistic visionary if you like all those words 
and really does care about the dancer's health and their performance because he mm. realizes you can only perform well, funnily enough, if you're healthy. Yeah. Uh, and then also an ex. So there are some examples uh, and some schools where actually they totally, and I've been asked to speak at some schools, um, you know, uh, and they've actually said to me, please come and tell the dancers, please to eat. Yeah. You know, so, so we can't always blame the school or the company. So there are some like that, which is great. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, the, the fact that I'm working with them, they've invited me and asked me to come and be input. That's obviously brilliant. So there are some like that. And Australia, and I, I suspect uh, New Zealand, there are some places where it is, especially Australia, actually, the, it's quite forward looking, very progressive, mm. looking at the health, great. Unfortunately, as we've mentioned, you know, there are some, there are some, on the other hand, there are some companies and schools, obviously, I'm going to mention names, yeah. where they are. Um, a little bit behind the time, shall we say, okay? Yeah, yeah. That's partly because uh, they just haven't caught up. Yep. There's no point saying, oh, this is the weight for a ballerina, but remember the ballerina, everyone was shorter, mm. right? Mm. There's no point saying this is the weight, now we're all taller. So it's just, this makes no sense. And there are some of the old school uh, mindset, the yes, lower weight. And the same for, same for sport. There are yeah. some equally old school coaches, especially male cyclists. Yeah. Uh, it was on a BBC program recently and I've seen one of the cyclists and it's true they've got it I think it's that it is a mind an old-fashioned mindset or a misplaced mindset often coming from either uh, an athlete or even a dancer who was themselves a little bit like that you know in that mindset that the only way to success is being uh, underway right so we have got to contend uh, with that in dance and sport there are some where it is still um, old school. Um, and also, by the way, also in medicine, I even remember that my, my old boss, my consultant was saying, yes, his, his daughter who became a doctor was blaming him and saying, yeah, it's, it's the, the old ones like you who were saying, oh, but back in the day, we worked all day and all night. And, you know, yes. this younger generation, you have to go through this. By the, yeah. So, you know, it is, it's not just dance, it's not just sport. It's, no. it's, it's but you see what I mean but that's the thing but just because something has always been done like this yeah like just as a doctor I had to work all day and all night the whole weekend and I was a mess yeah uh, physically and mentally on Monday morning I didn't know I didn't know if I was in Australia or New Zealand I was uh, you know but just because it's always been done like this doesn't just because people have had these horrendous experiences oh it's it's definitely not character building it's character destroying or more the point is health destroying yeah so uh, I think it's not just dance. I think it's all aspects of life. Uh, but that's where the problems arise, that if it's, oh, it's always been done like this and whatever, and, and people get fixated that the weight is the only thing. Listen, if it was true, if it was true, that if I was a certain weight, I would become a prima ballerina, I would have done that. Yeah. Yeah, and if you have to, if you have to be a certain weight and win the Tour de France, we'd all be winning, wouldn't we? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, how could that possibly be true? If you really think about that in logical terms, it's, it, it can't be the only determining feature. No. And also, if someone is that weight, doesn't now suddenly automatically make them successful, if anything. You know what I mean? So it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's, a, it's almost like there's that cognitive dissonance. You're like, logically, yeah. intellectually, you know that's not true, but there is something in your old brain 
is what yeah. like, is that your dinosaur brain is kind of driving you somewhere. And it's you've said a couple of things, Nikki, which I find really interesting. And the one is you're absolutely right. It's not a it's not a blame game, and potentially as well, it might be you know just a lack of awareness in and amongst some coaches, you know. And that's why what you've done by creating courses for coaches to then oh, yeah. you know yes. in and around this you know relative energy deficiency in sport as I believe resources on, is it the British, is it health before? Yeah, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And and, um, all the coaches that I've worked with and all the dance schools and dance companies, when actually I've spoken to them, I've not found many or any, I mean, some are more receptive than others, it's true, that are not interested and willing to listen and help. And and the coach often says I often say now to the athlete or dancer is it okay can I have a chat can we have a three-way discussion with your coach or your or your teacher or whatever and the coach has been really um you know it's like oh that's great now I feel more confident and you know and, and totally the medical backing and understand and it's a team game so from so you mentioned the resources so to that end um, because I can't see every single person individually. I've made a course, courses um, for both uh, coaches uh, and athletes. That's specifically female athletes. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could put the details of the courses yes. in the show notes. Uh, uh, and there's a discount on that at the moment. And if, you, if you're a coach and you complete that course, it's uh, endorsed by Bayesian British Association Sports and Exercise Medicine. And you get a certificate of completion. I put in some little quizzes. Not nice. too difficult. But you have to pass them. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty goes. Anyway, so if you pass all the quizzes, listen to all the lectures, um, uh, then you get this certificate of completion. Okay, so that's the courses. If you just want more general educational information, uh, then the I've written the Bayesian website called Health for Performance Number Four co.uk so that's um just got some information for the athletes the coaches also the healthcare professionals yes um uh, on there there's a page suggested blood tests and things like this um which everyone can look at yeah um, i'm quite uh, i think it's very important that everything is open yeah and that's why also my dance study is open access Yes, I paid a lot of money to get that published, right? So yes. <laughs> go have a look, and also you can see the questionnaire. Yeah, so I'm no, very, it's fabulous. Yeah, if, if dancers, if dance schools, dance companies want to use that questionnaire, and there's a scoring sheet, but equally, you know, it would be relevant for sports athletes. Um, obviously, just substitute <laughs> uh, dance training for cycle yeah. training because it just gives you an idea of the training load and, so and, you the, know, I think as well for researchers it's so great to have these tools readily available that that have been validated in particular populations to then be able to use to potentially you know draw more data from different populations just to be able to get a really good picture yeah, like, exactly so I mean it's it's um and I'm using that currently that particular questionnaire with blood tests um well maybe with bone scans like we're not allowed to hands-on research at the minute but anyway yes. um so there's that and then there's also my own personal website nikikfitness.com yes. where I put um blogs and and, and stuff yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh presentations podcasts that I do with people so that's another place to have a look if you want to you know delve into this more 
Um, it's got my publications on there and the Bayesian website that's got some other publications. Um, uh, please be patient with me though for the Bayesian website because I have to, I'm the administrator for that. So I try and keep it up to date, but. Um, uh. <laughs> Becky, like you've got so many resources on your, your um, personal page. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, it's a good thing. I don't know how you keep up with it all, to be honest. Like, there is so well, much fear. Well, it is tricky, but it's fun because, I mean, it's my passion and I yeah. like to see what's going on and try and yeah. keep tabs on everything. But listen, uh, you know, it's there's a lot of stuff going on. So I'm also very open. If people, um, please shout out to me and let yeah. me know. Yeah. If there is a, an interesting study, project, research, something um you know let let me know uh, at the moment i'm supervising a phd student in slovenia oh, wow. who's actually doing um a study on male cyclists looking at these energy potential and a bit like the anna luke study for for yeah. women she's doing it for men so i know there's lots of good stuff out there people are doing stuff yeah um so yeah i'm always very happy to hear of what people are either doing or, or have seen or read yeah. um that uh, it's relevant because ultimately we're all a community it's all important to share stuff Absolutely. which is why i'm personally very very in favor of open access yeah because it annoys me yeah. <laughs> when i look at oh that looks like a really interesting article and i go and then it's hidden behind a paywall i can only I see the apps really yeah. annoying it so, is, it's not uh, always available on Sci-Hub either, which is my... No, exactly. So it, it's uh, just like, well, that's a shame because yeah. I would actually find that interesting or want to look at it. So that's why um, I try, not always, uh, because it, it is, the downside is it's very, very expensive is. to have open access. Mm. And for the dance study, I personally paid for that. So actually, mm. I'd really like it if people looked at it because it makes me feel better. At least it was it was worth it that people are looking at it and reading it and whatever. So yeah, please go. Well, it was a great book. study. And I absolutely loved how you had the photo of your grandmother and yourself yeah, yeah, exactly. there. That was, that was brilliant actually. Um, yeah. Nikki, and now you've been really generous with your time. I just have one more question. What about females who are on the oral contraceptive pills? So obviously they don't have a period at all because it completely shuts off their cycle. So is it just the, other signs and symptoms that we've discussed that might illustrate that something might be going on under the hood like what's what's your recommendation yeah. around that absolutely correct yeah i mean to say that um of course it's every woman's choice what contraception she uses so i'm not going to get into that whole <laughs> debate um uh, and if you have regular cycles and you prefer the combined oral that's no problem and in fact often uh, from medical reasons women with pcos women with endometriosis, actually, it's a very good choice, mm. uh, clinical indication, but you're absolutely right. The downside of it is that it masks what your own internal female hormones are doing. Mm. So that would switch off effectively the warning sign uh, mm. for women. But then it kind of makes you, we kind of now, when I, this might come out wrong, it's a bit now like a male athlete or dancer, you see, because we've taken the mental thing, yes. right? So we have to rely, you're absolutely right. We look at all the other things, the yeah. behaviours around food, the behaviours around exercise, uh, you know, the mood, uh, the sleep, uh, the gastric intestinal issues. So we look, everything else is still valid. You're absolutely right. And also from a blood test point of view, yeah. obviously there won't be any point looking at the female hormones because no. the, uh, that shuts it down. But I'm still looking at everything else. I'm looking at the thyroid function. Yeah, looking for at sure. So it, it's, you can still, you can still uh, unpick it. Either. Yeah. 
but it's a bit harder it's true mm. but it's absolutely possible but also you i just want to make say one comment about the oral contraceptive pill just um to be absolutely clear and clarify um that uh, you that is a withdrawal bleed you get when you're on yeah. the pill yeah that is not your own period okay so don't think yeah. Uh, I've got a pe- I've got a period. Yes. This doesn't apply to me. If you're on the pill, be aware it's because you're taking external hormones. So um, just be aware that that is a different, totally different category to yeah. having a menstrual period not on the pill. Just in case people are uh, unsure about that, but I've written a blog about that, um, yeah. so you can have a look at that on the website if you want to look at that in more detail. Thank you, and I'm glad you clarified sure. that because I don't think people are as aware of that as you would expect um and also micronutrient status is another tends to be another really good thing to kind of look at because if people are low energy across the board then they're likely to be low in all those essential nutrients as well especially iron um even even high training load um even if you have got good energy availability i think it's just because you know you just so much demand yeah and also maybe your bit of uh micro damage to the muscles yeah you, you losing iron you can't absorb it so well anyway so yeah so iron uh, is a is a important one i look at uh b12 especially if they're vegetarians you know yes. what's going on there uh, and also vitamin d uh although it's not exactly dietary as you know you can't get your yeah. full quota of vitamin d from diet but um uh vitamin d i always look i always measure and because i found it was low in the cyclists yeah uh, especially here in the uk yeah we don't see much sun i can tell you that so um definitely those are sort of the things i uh, i look at yeah nice and particularly here in new zealand vitamin d is through winter it doesn't matter where you live you're not going to get yeah, exactly so the, and, by the way it's no harm it's like it's just uh, especially for an athlete an informed sports supplement of vitamin yeah. d I mean, you know what I mean? You're not going to go far wrong. In fact, here we take it in our households. We take it all year round. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, thousand IU per day in form sport. I mean, I'm not competing, but I just take that because then I know it's really good quality. It's been batch tested, et cetera. Yep. So, uh, and, you know, a decent dose, a thousand IU is generally good. Um, uh, I wouldn't take any more than that yeah. uh, because equally you don't want to overload, but equally lower doses, I'm not sure really uh, are sufficient. Yeah. So you can do, but taking care of those little things um, certainly is very important. You're right. Absolutely. And testing, like, so if anyone has, you know, any concerns about, you know, the possibility of overdosing, vitamin D test, pretty easy to get. Yeah, yeah. Here in the UK, I mean, I'm actually CMO, Chief Medical Officer of um, Fourth Edge, and we specifically offer blood tests for athletes. And I put together uh, blood test bundles, I suppose you call them, uh, uh, which look out for warning signs of of either reds and also I always measure vitamin D anyway. So if if any listeners are in the UK or if, if you're coming to the UK, yeah. uh, get in touch. You can get bloods done through there. But I'm sure that in New Zealand, the, uh, yeah, if, yeah. if necessary, you can uh, get some bloods there to, to check up. No, that's awesome. And you mentioned the thy- you mentioned the things that you would measure, actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And on the website, on the Bayesian website, uh, I've given a sheet I mean, it's a very long list because I put down everything. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, don't go and think, oh my God, I've got to get every single blood test. But um, the general gist of it is looking at the th- uh, the hormone axes, including yeah. the thyroid axis, 
and vitamin D and ferritin are definitely on that list as well. Yeah. Nice. Nikki, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been really great to chat to you. And just, you know, I had like a page of notes and I might have hit maybe a third of them, but I felt like our conversation <laughs> got really quite rich in, in a lot of areas, which I think people will find really oh interesting and really helpful as well so thank you so much Nikki and I'll be sure to link to the studies that we've discussed of just of written notes plus of course your website with all of the resources that you've got because they're fabulous and as you say you know people can reach out to you through those channels if they've got other yeah. questions or anything sure. like that so that's awesome okay all the best Lovely. thanks thanks Nikki So team, as I said in my intro, I think a lot of really good take homes there and you know the, the whole concept of relative energy deficiency in sport, it really, people think it kind of falls into the camp of just the endurance athlete or just the female athlete. But that is just not the case so you know if you are interested in this area absolutely check out the show notes for all of those resources that i talked about now next week i'm super excited to bring to you my conversation with brad kearns who you may well know from uh, his work with mark sisson and his books on the primal blueprint, primal fitness, the keto reset, keto for life. Here's a new book coming out too. In addition to his podcast was called Get Over Yourself and now it's called Be Rad. And he is really a, this, an amazing personality in the whole primal ancestral health space. And I really enjoyed having a conversation with him. So until then, if you want to get hold of me, you can find me on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over at Instagram at Mickey Willardin, same handle for Twitter, but also over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, and there you can sign up to a bunch of my meal plans all around real food nutrition, fat loss, or if you're an athlete, an athlete plan that really guides you on how to fuel pre and post training and also within training as well. And um, that's one of the best ways that you can support the podcast in addition to jumping on your favorite podcast platform and subscribing to Wikipedia there and also leaving a five-star review. That would absolutely be amazing. And finally, I do have, as you may already know, information now up about Shreduary. This is a 28-day kind of reset plan, if you like. Didn't bother doing it in January. Who's got time to think about that when there's still Christmas cake to eat, right? Uh, so February is the perfect time to kick off your nutrition and fitness-related goals. And I'm doing this with Rebecca Keat, who is a world-class triathlete, and um, she has such a wealth of experience of training people and this isn't necessarily an athlete plan at all actually because the fitness component really comes back to that real evidence base as to what we know is important from a fat loss perspective you know 15 to 20 minutes of hit body weight activity really designed just to get you started in 2021 albeit in february so look out for details on that on my page as well and until next week guys have a fab week see you later <laughs>